Welcome to the Inside Scoop Live podcast, where indie authors get personal about their books, their writing, and their passions. I'm your host, Sherry Hoyt. Join me for some lively conversations with debut indie authors and seasoned veterans alike. It's a great place to find your next amazing read or even get inspired. So sit back and enjoy the show and let me know what you think. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm talking with Mark Shaken, author of Automatic Stay, the second book in his exciting 3J legal thriller series. Before we get started, here's the inside scoop on the author. Mark Shaken lives with his wife, Lauren, and their dog, Emily, in Denver, Colorado. He schooled at Haverford College and Washburn University and practiced commercial bankruptcy law for several decades before moving on in 2019 to write, volunteer, and play music. In addition to his latest legal thriller, Automatic Stay, he is the author of And Just Like That, Essays on a Life Before, During, and After the Law, and Fresh Start, A Legal Mystery. Mark is currently working on his book, Unfair Discrimination, and you can learn more about Mark and his work at markshakenauthor.com. Well, hi, Mark. Welcome to Inside Scoop Live. Thanks, Sherry, for having me. Yeah, I spent quite a bit of time on your website, and... It looks like you are such a busy man, and I wanted to learn a little bit more about you uh, before we talk about your book, Automatic Stay. So can you tell us a little bit about your journey to becoming a published author? Sure. I was a lawyer for four decades and then made the decision to not go to court anymore. As I was making that decision, I also decided that I really didn't want to retire in the sense that I would you know, sit around and watch TV. Mm. Um, so I tried to put together a, a whole bunch of things that I could do that would keep me almost as busy as I was when I was a lawyer. And writing was one of them. I had written two books while I was practicing law. They were law books, but I wrote two and I actually enjoyed the process. And part of the decision uh, that I was making as I was leaving the practice of law was that I would start to write books and do it pretty regularly. So my routine is very regular just like going to work would have been very regular. Mm. Um, and I've, I've just really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. So writing is actually your post-career career. And uh, you're also an accomplished photographer and you're a big music fan as well. Are these creative passions of yours something that you became interested in after you left the law? Or have they always been a part of your life? They've always been a part of my life. I started playing piano when I was four and then stopped much to my mom's chagrin when <laughs> I was 11 um, and took up guitar a year later. And that's the principal instrument that has followed me through most of my life. The photography has been around since high school. Uh, and both of those are just great outlets, especially if you're a lawyer and you had a bad day in court. Both of those give you some place to go uh, after, yeah. after a day in court. The photography, I'm colorblind, and so photography, in my mind, is about the only form of uh, visual art I can do because the camera takes care of the color for me. Oh, wow. So you just see in black and white? No. Um, it, it, colorblind is a really bad way of uh, that the medical community describes oh, it. Okay. It's uh, probably better describe it as color confusion. You, you typically, if you're colorblind, you have difficulty distinguishing certain colors from other ones on the color wheel. So for me, blue and purple are identical. Orange and green are identical. So I, I see color, but I, don't, I can't always accurately tell people what color it is. Oh, okay, okay. Which is kind of deadly in Photoshop if you are 
thinking that you're making the sky bluer and your wife comes over and looks at it and goes, my God, what kind of filter did you have on the camera? The sky is bright purple. Then, you know, something went wrong. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. That's interesting. So yeah, I never knew that. You mentioned your writing career started with law books. And because uh, I noticed your first book that that I saw on Amazon anyway was a um, was it kind of like a memoir? I know it's a compilation of essays about your time in the legal field. What made you decide to write that book and then from there jump into fiction? I wanted to do fiction, but I felt like I needed to get the memoir of a not famous lawyer off of my chest first. Huh? So the book kind of wrote itself and probably wrote itself over a 30 year period while I was going to law school, getting out of law school and then getting into the practice of law. I had made mental notes over almost four decades of, of practicing of things that uh, should I ever actually sit down and write this memoir that I wanted to cover. So the, mm. the book kind of got planned out over the career and then got written down as soon as the period of euphoria of not going to court anymore uh, ended. Euphoria <laughs> was, was not a, an emotion I had experienced a whole lot of as a trial lawyer. And it's an interesting emotion. It kind of, you wake up in the morning and you're, you're so happy that you don't get anything done. Um, and so I had to wait for that to kind of pass. Mm. But once it did, I sat down and I had my list of the topics I wanted to cover and it kind of wrote itself. So, and with that out of the way, then I could turn to fiction. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Now, so let's talk about your fiction. Tell us a little bit about your book, Automatic Stay. Automatic Stay continues to follow the career of my star lawyer heroine in the book, who is a, a partner in a big law firm in downtown Kansas City. So the book's going to be set in Kansas City, as the first two books have been. And we lived in Kansas City for almost 30 years. So that gives me a chance to talk about a city that I know very well. And that, you know, is a little bit of a flyover place in the United States. Nobody really talks about um, visiting and vacationing in Kansas City. Mm. Um, but it's a pretty fascinating place to set a series uh, it's got a rich jazz history, which is perfect because each of the books, part of the formula will be something musical mm -hmm. and something jazz because Kansas City, um, you know, it's world famous for barbecue. So there's going to be a small barbecue element to each story. And, you know, my firm was in downtown Kansas City in a, in a high rise. And so you might, if you knew my firm, you might look at my star uh, character's uh, firm and say, oh, that looks pretty similar. Oh. Okay. Uh, so the, in, in Automatic Stay, and her nickname is 3J, so in Automatic Stay, 3J represents six jazz clubs who have survived COVID but could not continue to survive without some bankruptcy protection. So they hire her, they file bankruptcy, and then an anonymous somebody starts a disinformation campaign on social media to get the clubs to shut down. And so the, the race in the book is to follow along how they figure out whose campaign it is and how they get it to stop so that the clubs don't go under. And then will they be able to do that in time? I like how you worked COVID into the script, because it's probably pretty hard to write fiction without mentioning COVID and, and it being any kind of, you know, a realistic fiction tale. Yeah, so if you're writing a, a legal thriller and you then bump into COVID and the pandemic, that would change everything if you're going to be accurate and true to what was going on, because no one went to court for two years. All the court, like everything else in the world, moved to virtual hearings, you know, Zoom hearings or Zoom equivalent hearings. And so there really wasn't personal contact. You know, people hired lawyers through Zoom uh, mm. video conferences and lawyers went to court 
on Zoom and it changed everything. And I didn't really want to deal with that. So mm. I said slightly in the future. So the book takes place in 2023 in my fervent hope that by 2023, it really will be a, not a pandemic anymore and yeah. just an endemic. And everybody uh, has begun to go back to in-person work in the law business and has begun to go back to court. So it's sort of happening, but I just really wanted to avoid the brain damage of how would I tell this story if nobody is seeing each other in person and no one's going to court. Right, exactly. I didn't even think about that part of it, just having court on Zoom. Wow, that's crazy. In the first book and the second book then bracket uh, the pandemic. So the first book it takes place slightly in the past. And somebody in that book, I won't give it away, who ends up going to jail. And the, the last scene in the book is that COVID has now struck and, you know, it's, it's decimating jails and as well as nursing homes. And so that book sort of touches on the, the beginning of COVID in the end of that story. Mm. And then I skip a year and a half or two years and then automatic stay kind of picks up where we all are in the world, hopefully, you know, past that problem. Yeah. Uh, in 2023. Yeah. So what inspired the actual storyline for this novel? I can't actually say where all these stories come from. Some of that, I try to make sure that none of the stories are based on anything that really happened to me in my practice. Mm. Number one, I wouldn't, I, I don't want to even touch on giving away client confidences or, or writing a book where a client would pick it up and read it and say, well, that's me. I don't want that to happen. Mm -hmm. But surprisingly, the bankruptcy world is full of interesting characters, uh, interesting plots in real life. You know, when people owe lots of money, it alters how they, you know, conduct themselves in life. And so it's really not that hard to come up with a, a somewhat plausible plot line, which mm -hmm. is my hope that it's completely plausible because I, the one thing that I don't like and this is just me, if I'm watching a legal thriller movie or a legal thriller TV show or reading a legal thriller book, sometimes I get angry at the TV or the book because it's not portraying certain parts of the law, how it really plays out accurately, in my opinion. So I want things to be accurate, although hopefully not overkill for the non-lawyers that are reading it. Mm -hmm. um, but I do, I do want it to be accurate and at the same time have that lend to the plausibility of the plot. Yeah, because what we see on TV, although we know it's fiction, we tend to think, okay, that's the way it really happens. So and, and probably even reading a book, I think a part of our brain just kind of says, okay, that's the way it is. And, you know, we, we forget it's fiction sometimes. Yeah. I mean, there's some that translate pretty well. And I'm, I'm happy with it. Like the Lincoln Lawyer, which is a Michael Connelly series, mm -hmm. has now made it to the screen. And I watched that because I love Michael Connelly. And I thought that was pretty accurate but I can come up with other shows that I can't watch because they're not accurate and it drives me crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, Automatic Stay is book two in your 3J mystery series. Was it your plan to write a series when you first began writing? Yeah. Um, so I kind of sketched out four plots. So I have two more in me. Mm. Um, I'm writing the third one now, and the fourth one is just in the taking notes as I think of things kind of stage. But after the four come out, uh, then I'll sort of sit back and see if I have a fifth with 3J in it or if I'm going to change up and try to move to a different series. Okay. But you're right what you know. So my guess is that the, as I stick with fiction, it'll be something to do with law because that, that is what I know. Yeah, yeah. Now, 3J, tell us about her. Start with how did you come up with her name? I love that. 
so the middle name is her name is Josephina Jillian Jones. And you learn in the new book that her dad calls her Joe, but everybody else calls her 3J. Jillian was a name when my wife got pregnant that we were um, going to name our son if he was our daughter. Um, And so for whatever reason, just always liked that name. Josephina, I'd known one going back to college and just liked the the name. And it's kind of a complicated set of syllables. And I just like the way it kind of rolls off the tongue. But when you put those two together, that's a mouthful. So I gave her a really (laughs) simple third name. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And and I love how you came up with 3J. I I feel like that's pretty creative. Wow. I never would have thought of something like that. Yeah, I don't know where that came from, but it, it's a nice nickname. It's an easy one. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah. So so what motivates 3J? So 3J is an African-American female partner in a big law firm in downtown Kansas City. So she's hopefully, as the books come out and the story of her life develops a bit more, she's you know pretty complicated. She grew up on the poverty line in, in New Orleans and made it out to go to a fancy liberal arts college in Washington, Whitman College, and then made her way to Kansas to go to law school and then just sort of stayed when the law firm interviewed her. But what you learn about her is that she joined the firm at a time when diversity really wasn't front and center and anything the firm was interested in, which is true for many of the large law firms. They've certainly gone whole hog in on diversity and they're uh, scrambling to try to make sure that, that their lawyers represent something of what the population, you know, in the United mm-hmm. States looks like, which is great. But, you know, she talks in the second book about how, you know, in order to stay at a law firm, you have to have a, a sense of purpose, which most lawyers have fairly easily, uh, trust in a sense of belonging. And she didn't get uh, much of a sense of trust or belonging when she joined the firm because there really weren't uh, very many uh, people of color and certainly not women of color at Mm. the firm. And, you know, things are a little better now and she's certainly made partner and the firm loves her. But some of what she has gone through are things that I would say that I've observed uh, women and people of color have gone through in law firms. Now, as I say that, I'm not a woman and I'm not a person of color. Mm -hmm. So I can't really have 3J reflect things that I think people of color or women feel when they get into those situations, because I'm never going to be able to stand in those kinds of shoes. I have to respect that. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, diversity is important to me. And I want to make sure that my my lead character is diverse. That was important to me. Yeah, yeah. So what prompted your decision to use a female person of color as your lead? Well, if I wanted the lead to be diverse, that person wasn't going to look like me. Mm -hmm. And so I still have a lot of friends at the old firm um, who are women and some who are people of color. And, you know, it's hard enough to make your way through a law firm and rise to the level of being admitted as a partner, let alone if you're doing that and you don't feel a sense of trust and belonging. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I always found that to be compelling and thought it would be a good thing to do and a good time in the United States to do it. It's interesting because I get asked about this in different ways when I give interviews or even talk. And some people have thought it was a great idea. No one's told me it was a terrible idea and nobody's called me out for doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, But my comment that I tend to make is, well, if I can only write a book where the character is like me, then all of my characters are going to be, you know, aging white men. And Mm. that won't be much of a book. And uh, so the alternative is to try to have the book reflect something of what America uh, looks like. And and I I think that's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. 
I just wonder about the challenges of writing in that female voice. What were some of the hurdles you faced and how did you handle those challenges? Well, for most of the time that 3J is doing her thing, she's a lawyer and Mm -hmm. she just happens to be a black female lawyer. Mm -hmm. Um, So for most of the time, she's doing her job. So her job would be no different than my job. So when she's in court, she's saying the same things I would have said in bankruptcy court when she's taking a deposition as she does in in uh, automatic stay as sort of one of the moments in the book. A, I hope the deposition accurately reflects what it's like to be in a deposition. I think it does. And then B, what she's doing is what any lawyer would do, regardless, you know, whether they're green, red, purple, you know, orange, whatever their yeah. their their color is and whatever their, their sexual preference might be. Um, they still have to go and do that. Uh, and where it comes up is in some of her discussions with her mentor in the book, who is uh, William Pascal, who's in his mid to late 60s in the book, she's in her 40s. And what I think is one of the interesting things is that's her confidant, um, because that's who taught her bankruptcy, that's who brought her into the firm, and that's who, in his own way, helped her find a way to feel like she belonged and, and had trust. Mm. And is he a, a, an older white male? Yes. Yeah, okay. Nice. Somebody uh, has uh, accurately noticed that he, he sounds a lot like me, um, <laughs> uh, which, which is okay and not a bad thing. And there are certainly parts of me in him, but he's not me. Yeah. So obviously your experience in the legal world translates into your fictional work through your characters and events. Does that leave a lot of research to do? What does preparation for writing your stories look like? I use a little app called OneNote. It's actually free and it's but it's made by Microsoft and mm. it, you can have it on your phone and you can have it on your computer and they sync and I use that to take notes uh, or as my wife calls it zoning out in the middle of doing something when something comes into my mind out comes the phone and I got to write it down immediately I think in the older days I would have had a, a pad next to the bed and wake up at two in the morning and scribbled something down and hoped <laughs> it was you know, understandable in the morning when I woke up So I I use that to write a very extensive outline and try to sketch out the new characters in the book and what they're going to be like. I don't necessarily need to do research for that, but I do like to have as much on paper or electronic paper as I can. In the new book, one of the characters has a a medical affliction, I'll call it without giving it away. And that one, I did a a bunch of research. While I've always been fascinated by that particular affliction that the character has, I needed to be accurate again. And so I interviewed a psychiatrist and there's some documentaries that I watched for that. So that kind of research I did. The other thing that I do research is the historical lookbacks of Kansas City, hopefully are very accurate. Mm. And that does require research. And then there's a, uh, in this, because it's jazz clubs, there's a lot of jazz references in the book. And those also required research to make sure that what I thought I remembered about uh, one performer or another it was correct. So there's some, there's some references to Count Basie in the book. There's some references to Clark Terry. So some fa- you know, famous jazz musicians who had connections in one way or the other to Kansas City. So those I want to be accurate. Yeah. Have you had the opportunity to go back to Kansas City for the work on any of your books? Funny you ask. My wife and I just went back for uh, a long weekend 
so that I could run around with a camera and take pictures of things that I want in the new book. Oh, nice. Um, so yeah, so now I have a whole series of you know, iPhone pictures to go through to make sure that if I'm describing a particular scene in Kansas City that it's accurate. There's a bar that repeats in the book, which I call O'Brien's, which is at, in the book it's set at the corner of Westport Road and Pennsylvania and Kansas Cityans will know that that's a famous bar but called Kelly's. And Kelly's is one of the oldest remaining standing buildings in Kansas City. And uh, during the Civil War, it had a, and post-Civil War, it had a fairly prominent role in, in uh, Kansas City history and in slave trade, unfortunately. So mm. it's a, it's a kind of cool place to not only have 3J and Pascal meet to talk about you know, the Week in Review uh, on Fridays, but also it's a doorway to be able to throw in some Kansas City history. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love that. Wow, that is an old building. How much of your story came as a surprise as you were writing? You said you do extensive outlines. So do any of your characters end up going in a direction that you hadn't planned on? Yeah, they do. Hopefully it's not a huge, you know, U-turn in the middle because that, <laughs> that, that would be disappointing that I did all this planning and plotting out how, the, how I was going to tell the story and then I went completely divergent. Um, but there are changes you know, the way dialogue comes out on paper may not always be how, in my mind's eye, I thought it would be coming out in a critical scene. Mm. And the whole notion of writing dialogue, which is not something you do at all as a lawyer, of course, is become very interesting to me. Uh, I don't actually know how other authors do it, but I can sit at the computer and talk to myself in both roles of the two people who are talking and, and having the dialogue. Once that starts, it doesn't always come out the way I, I may have envisioned it. But what they're talking about doesn't change that much. Oh, I love that you do that. That's really good to read it out loud when you're done to make sure it sounds like, you know, what you intended. You can tell if the dialogue is stilted. Yeah. Okay. So the deposition, which is a kind of dialogue in the law, um, where the lawyer is examining a witness, asking questions, and the witness is answering the questions. Uh, when I did that, the back and forth expanded in the book to beyond what I had you know, envisioned, mm. but I did talk both roles out so I can hear myself asking the question and hear the a witness try not to answer it, the lawyer follow up and then the witness answer it. So it's a different kind of dialogue, but the same way that it kind of got down on paper. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. So I'm curious, what kind of feedback have you received from your readers as the second book? You must have a growing fan base. So far, it's all good. The book hasn't been out that long yet and there's i'm sure a whole bunch of people who bought it that haven't read it yet mm -hmm. um so far it's good i think that they like the plot um the first book was about somebody who was supposedly hiding assets that fresh start was the first book and it was about a real estate tycoon who filed bankruptcy and then didn't disclose all of his assets which is a, a felony under mm. federal law and and that book generated some uh, a fair number of people who ask, well, does that ever really happen? The second book where you have hospitality industry needing to file bankruptcy because of COVID happened so much over the last two plus years that no one is asking me, does that ever really happen? Mm. Because we've all lived through it. So the, the contrast of the kind of question between book one and book two has been interesting to me. Uh, but the, back to book one, it does happen. Boris Becker, the famous tennis star, uh, filed bankruptcy in Britain and didn't disclose all of his assets on purpose and got caught and he's going to end up going to jail. So, Oh, wow. Happen. I didn't know that. So what do your family and friends think about your writing and how do they support your writing career? And 
How did it feel sharing your work with them for the first time? The, the first book, and just like that, the, the memoir of the not famous lawyer, my wife lived through it. So I don't think anything in the book was terribly surprising to her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that book, I kind of had her read most of the essays as I went along. Mm-hmm. The second book, Fresh Start, I finished and she read it before I did anything with it. Um, and she gave me some comments, which are great. A lot of the comments, which I really appreciated, were you know, too much law, too much technical stuff. Only law wonks are going to want to read it if you do this. So I tried mm. to tone it down, uh, which was really very helpful. The third book, I didn't give her to read until it came out. So she read it with everybody else in the, that bought it in the first week. Oh, wow. Um, so I, I've sort of used her in, in different ways. I don't use advanced readers to get feedback. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know why. I know authors do that, and it's talked a lot about in different discussion groups on the internet, but I, I just haven't done that. I think it's because I'm finding writing to be kind of a private thing, and I'd rather risk getting negative feedback after the book comes out than getting an entire rewrite from mm. person A and a different rewrite from person B and a different rewrite from person C. Yeah. Uh, that, that'd be a little overwhelming still. Um, so I'm not using that form of pre-release feedback. But the family has really been very supportive, whether it's as the book is going along or before the book comes out or after the book comes out. So they they seem to find it kind of cool that I got to uh, actually do something that I'd talked for decades about wanting to do, which is sit down and write. Yeah, that's very cool. (laughs) It's hard to write a book. (laughs) It is. It is. But I mean, I get up, I sit down at the computer at 830 five to six days a week and my deal with myself is I'll write for at least two hours even if I only have five words come out I sit there normally I have more than five words come out uh, and if I'm on a roll I don't have to stop after two hours I can keep going oh wow and the first book took nine months to write the second book took a little more than four months to write and the third book seems like it's on pace for the same you know four month kind of turnaround to get it out the door to the editor Oh, that's amazing. I feel like with the first book, you're kind of setting up your characters and and all that and actually setting up the whole series. So, you know, with the subsequent books, it's probably easier to just focus on the story itself. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I'm learning is how much in the next book does it refer back to things that happened in book one or book two? Because you don't want to you know, have pages and pages of things that were book one history kind of things. Um, right that then get referred to in book two or book three. So that's that's a little tricky, and it's probably going to get worse as I add books to the series. Hopefully that can be read standalone. That's my goal. I mean, it would be better if, if somebody knew what happened in book one and book two to get to book three, but hopefully they could read book three and not have to have read the first two of uh, the 3J series. Right, because the cases are all are different in each book. Correct, although the judge will be the same judge. Oh. And, uh, uh, that's kind of fun. And he'll have a different law clerk between the first book and the second book. And the new law clerk will stay longer and her character will get developed a little bit more. Yeah. yeah. When the first, uh, I clerked for a judge, a bankruptcy judge, when I got out of law school. And when the first one came out, he asked if, if the judge in the book was him. And I kind of chuckled and said, if it was you, would that be a good thing or a bad thing? You probably <laughs> answered the question. <laughs> yeah. But there are parts of the, the Judge Robertson in the series that are like the uh, judge I clerked for. You know, ah. Very wise and very thoughtful. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. 
I think sometimes people want to see themselves in your books, you know, and, and then at other times they kind of worry. It's like, hmm, you know, you always hear about the don't make me mad. I'll write about you in my next novel, you know. <laughs> yeah, for, for sure. Yeah. yeah. So it sounds like you really enjoy the writing process. Would you say that's your favorite part? And is there anything you wish you had known before you actually started writing? I think I like the four things that I sort of fill my day with equally. Um, I get to serve on uh, nonprofit boards and that makes me really happy because I can start helping people in small ways and, and I enjoy that. I didn't have a lot of time to do that uh, as a practicing lawyer and didn't do enough of it. And now I can do as much as I want. And mm-hmm. so that makes me happy. Photography is really important to me, um, mostly sports photography for the last you know 15 or 18 years. And for me, anyway, there's really nothing better than going out and photographing Major League Soccer, which is what I kind of do during the spring, summer and fall. Oh, wow. So I actually like all of them equally and music until I am too arthritic to play will be um, very important. The book thing, though, is the new thing in the mix. So, you know, it's it's shiny still. Yeah. (laughs) I enjoy that. (laughs) And, And I hope that that stays. I hope I don't ever look at it like it's just a drudgery uh kind of thing to do because that'd be sad but right now i'm, I'm just really loving it so uh, yeah it's great that's yeah. wonderful so what's next for you you said you mentioned you're working on your third story yeah, the, in your the, 3j mystery right so each of the book's name comes from something involved in the bankruptcy code so fresh start is a bankruptcy phrase automatic stay is a very important bankruptcy phrase the new book is going to be entitled unfair discrimination which surprisingly is a phrase right out of the bankruptcy code Hmm. only bankruptcy could suggest that there's some kind of discrimination that's okay as long as it's just not unfair discrimination that kind's not okay (laughs) and so that the new book is going to be about a rural agricultural belt uh real estate um not a developer as much as somebody who is buying and selling real estate in the agricultural belt. And he and his wife are going to make their way up to Kansas City to hire a bankruptcy lawyer and file bankruptcy. In this book, 3J is not going to be their lawyer. She's going to be the lawyer for all the unsecured creditors Mm. who this couple owes money to. And the book is going to have an element of, I guess the way to describe this is, right-wing fringe you know domestic terrorist element to it oh wow so hopefully something that is topical yeah absolutely hmm well and and so you said you're online to finishing it in the same amount of time you finished automatic stay so where does that place things well uh, what i've learned is to be patient with the next stage after i write it which is the editing part because that can take longer uh, at times so Mm. I think what I'm learning is that the book can come out something like six to nine months after I finish my part. Mm-hmm. And I was going to say first draft, but it's not a first draft. It's more like an eighth or tenth draft because writing is really all about rewriting and editing yourself before you let anybody else have at it. Right. Um, so that's that seems to be a fair turnaround window between getting a design for the cover that I like and then getting the book formatted and and going through the editing phase and then getting it out on Amazon and Ingram spark for other um, book distributors. Yeah. Now, did you do all that yourself? No. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) No. Um, I I mean, I think it would be insane for me to consider that I would edit myself that at least for me, that would be a, a silly idea because you really do need somebody else to take your work and say, 
you can say this more efficiently. Um, mm -hmm. This doesn't make any sense or it's not consistent. So if I've made a mistake, I'm probably not going to catch it. So getting a real editor to do his or her thing is important. And I don't, I don't have the skill to do a book design. So those two components are important to the indie authors of the world. And there's you know, no end of editors and designers out there to do things for you. So there's lots to choose from. Yes, I absolutely agree. You need an editor. You need an, a different set of eyes because you're, you've read your book how many times? You're not going to catch it. You're right. Um, right. And if someone else can design a cover, hire the professionals. Do it. You know, cause it's one more thing you don't have to do, and you can focus on the parts that you like, the writing and the. I'm sure you love marketing and and all that, right? <laughs> Well, I might write a book someday of all the things not to do if, if you're going to be an indie author, because I feel like I'm very quickly making a good list of all of those things. But I try out different things for each book because there's no end of marketing things that you can try. Mm -hmm. You know, the first two books I wrote when I was a lawyer, the law books, I had a publishing company and boy, was I spoiled, unknowingly spoiled at the mm -hmm. time, because all I had to do was deliver the words. They'd edit it. They'd, they'd develop the book. They'd make the cover. They'd format the book, they published the book, and they sent me a you know a check every quarter. And I thought that's how all publishing works. <laughs> you know, in the modern era where it's pretty hard for a starting out author like me to have a publishing company, you're on your own, and it's very easy to publish. Amazon has you know changed the world in that regard. But that leaves the harder part, which is what what do you do once you've published it? You know, still kind of daunting. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing a bit about yourself and your work. Is there anything else you wanted to add today? Uh, no, this has been great. Thanks so much for having me on. And, you know, you can go to markshakenauthor.com and connect with me there, join a mailing list, you know, find the books, read some sample chapters, see some of the reviews the books have been getting. And I just really appreciate that you asked me to come on your show. Thank you for joining me today for my interview with Mark Shaken, author of Automatic Stay. You can learn more about Mark and his work at markshakenauthor.com. And be sure to check out our other interviews on InsideScoopLive.com. <laughs>